a special Sunday, as we said. We get to have these uh, six girls and also nine boys in the next service. A total of 15 8th and ninth graders who have uh, gone through some classes, gone through some instruction, and they've come to the point where they say, I want Bethlehem to be my church, and I want them to, to help me, and I want to help them. So an, an amazing thing here we get today. Um, and as we said before, this is part five. This is the last part of our series called Shine, and what an awesome Sunday to sort of uh, find the, the, the end point of this series as we celebrate the lights that God has put right here and, and the way that they're going to shine today. Um, one of the things I had the parents do in our end of year meeting is I, I had the parents meet with their kids and I asked them, if you were in eighth grade, what, would, what advice would you give to yourself as you look back? I said, what's one piece of advice you'd give to yourself back in eighth grade? And they all said, only one piece of advice? We'd like to have maybe 10. Um, but I was thinking of that. You know, if I were sitting right here in your seats today and, and if I w- sat down next to myself to give myself some advice in eighth grade, what would I say? I would say, Matt, just make sure you think about things before you do them. And I might even emphasize the word before. Matt, think about things before you do them. And the reason I would give myself that advice, there's lots of reasons. That maybe you could all relate with this. But one of the reasons is because not long after I finished eighth grade, I started ninth grade. I went to high school. No doubt, right? And the, the place I went to high school, first of all, my family lived in Oklahoma, but they sent me to Nebraska for high school. There was a Lutheran high school there, a boarding school, a dormitory school. And so good kids and bad kids went there, you know, so it wasn't just bad kids. But anyway, they sent me to this boarding school in Nebraska. And so I got to my freshman year, I got to share a room with three other guys, three other freshmen. And we got along pretty okay, but for some reason we had this feud with the four guys who lived next door. Uh, for example, they would put like shampoo on our door handle. So, you know, we'd try to open it and we couldn't. And so after that, we would put tacks on the floor outside their door. <laughs> one of the guys stepped on them. We got in trouble for that one. One thing we did is in the middle of the night, we just put our alarm clock right against their wall and let it go full blast for a good hour. And then a couple days later, we came back to our room after classes. We saw that that alarm clock was in pieces. They went gangster on it. It was like all over the place and just tatters everywhere. And so, you know, there's this feud going on. And after the alarm clock incident, we got to thinking, how can we deter them from coming in our room? What can we keep them from coming in? And so as I looked at the alarm clock, an idea came to my mind. You know, Matt, think about things before you do them. But basically what I said was, guys, let's make a little security system here. I know that they have electric fences and our door was metal. What if we had an electrified door? <laughs> so I, what we did is we took the power cord from this dead alarm clock. We sli- spliced off the end, you know, peeled it back, exposed the bare wires, and we were very electrical about it. We taped one wire to the right side of the door handle and one wire to the left side of the door handle. I mean, it just looked perfect. It's like we had diagrammed or something. And of course, we're thinking, this is going to be awesome. You know, they're going to try to come in our room. They're going to get shocked, and it's going to be so funny. And so we're just giggling to ourselves. And we're like, you know what? We don't want to wait for them to actually come here. Let's lure them a little bit. So we pound on the door like, hey, we just got a care package and we got some brownies and cookies and stuff. Come on over. And so we hear one of them open the door and he's going to come over and we're just giggling, giggling, giggling. And so we know he's about there. So we're like, okay, quick, let's turn it on. Let's plug it in. And so we take the plug and we put it in the wall. And if you know anything about electricity, what happened? Thankfully, uh, we didn't know much about electricity. Um, The lights went off. There was a loud snap down the hallway. You know, everything was powered down. And a minute later, the dorm supervisor walks down. He's like, what's going on down here? And we just looked at him. We don't know because we didn't know how electricity worked. We had no idea what had just happened. (laughs) 
And I'm glad we didn't know what was, what was going on. I'm very glad that, that despite our, 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 our design and that despite our best building and all this other stuff, I'm very glad uh, that our plan was not resilient enough to actually work when the test came. The, the, the question then is, do you think your faith is built well enough to be resilient when the test comes? Whether rain or shine, come rain or shine, will your faith stand up or will it blow a fuse? Will it get shut down? And this is a very you know, honest question for any Christian to ask themselves. What kind of a faith do I have that's, that's driving me? Is it a faith that's resilient? Is it going to stand the test or will it power down when I need it the most? And as we look at that question today, we're not going to play with electric plugs anymore, but what we are going to do is we're going to look at this story from, from uh, Daniel chapter 1. Here's one little interesting thing about Daniel chapter 1. When the scholars look at this section in Daniel chapter 1, people much smarter than I am, and when they look at all the historical evidence and put it all together, you know how old Daniel was? They say he was about 12, 13, 14 years old. Eighth grader, ninth grader. Um, and, and as the story of Daniel kicks off, uh, and, and as we look at his resilient faith, and maybe how we can have some of that too, there's, there's something you need to know about Daniel. He is young, he's 12, 13, 14 years old. Yes, he's young, but he has had a really, really tough life up to this point. Really hard life. And just to give you a quick glimpse of what he went through, uh, uh, Daniel was very much a believer in God. He loved God, but very few people in his area did. Uh, he grew up in Judah near Jerusalem, if not in Jerusalem. And every time he walked by the temple of God, do you know what he would see? Actually, the only word that really describes it in the Bible is that whenever he saw it, it, it was defiled, defiled. It was this place where things were going on and they had put things in that temple that we can't say out loud in church. It was just horrible what was going on. And so that's what he had to experience. And he also had this king who had a funny name, Jehoiakim. And as Daniel grew up, this would be the only king that he ever knew. Jehoiakim was a pushover. Um, he had to pay other nations for the right to exist. And finally, Jehoiakim did some pretty foolish things. He made uh, the king of Babylon, Nebuchadnezzar, pretty angry. And so Nebuchadnezzar comes up and he besieges Jerusalem. He arrests Jehoiakim, takes him off as a trophy, and he loots Nebuchadnezzar loots the temple of God of whatever was left in there. And so this is what Daniel grew up with. And he's only how old? 12, 13, 14 years old. And then things get even worse because when Nebuchadnezzar got back to Babylon, he talks to some of his chief officials. He's like, guys, I want you to go back to Judah, back to the area around Jerusalem, and I want you to find some of the smartest, brightest kids and bring them back here. Find some of the most uh, intelligent, street smart, and book smart, some of the strongest, some of the best looking individuals you can find. You're going to take them from their homes, and we're going to bring them to Babylon so that we can use them here. And as, as uh, Daniel chapter 1 records, Daniel was one of those kids. Eighth grade, ninth grade equivalent, you know, one of those kids being taken from home. And here's where we'll, we'll get to our first big point here. Here's what they did to him. And by the way, if you belong to Bethlehem, if you're in a growth group, this is one of the things you, you'll talk about this week. Was it right what Nebuchadnezzar did to Daniel and these other kids? 
Nebuchadnezzar took them in and he said, who you are today is different from anything in the past. We're going to teach you a new language. We're going to teach you new customs. We're going to teach you new music. We're going to teach you new gods, new religion, new everything. Everything you knew from your first 12, 13, 14 years of life is gone. Because we will conform you to be a Babylonian. Now you could argue, did did Nebuchadnezzar have the right to do that? We won't really get into that. Uh, That's more of an ethical debate. The the first thing I want you to think about, and this is the first fill-in if you're following along, along in that message sheet, the question for you is, who has the right to conform you? Who has the right to come into your life and say, you should think differently? Or to say, you should be talking differently or acting differently? Who has the right to make you conform? And I want you to think about three things. And the first one is quite common. Uh, Who do we give that right to? Uh, The first uh, entity that we give that to is simply the world, where we want to fit in. We want to go with the flow. And when people say something is cool, then we do it. If someone says something isn't cool, we don't do it. Uh, The world is this, you know, has this pattern set up for us. And it can be your choice to say, I let them conform me. Uh, Paul warns that against that in, in Romans chapter 12, do not conform to the standards of this world. Uh, that's not where, where you want to be. Uh, there's a second thing you can conform yourself to. This one is a little bit more hidden, and, and maybe it's, it's what most of us are actually guilty of. Whom do you give the right to conform to? You. If I was Daniel, I would stand up in Babylon and I'd say, you're not going to teach me a new language. I'll speak my Aramaic all day long. You're not going to teach me new customs. You're not going to teach me new gods. I would do the opposite of everything they ask just to make a point that I set my own standards. Nobody tells me what to do. I conform to myself. I decide what's right and wrong. And that's a pervasive thought in our world too. And again, God warns against that. Proverbs 14, there's a way that seems right, but in the end leads to death. And the third, third entity you can say has the right to conform you is the right one. Confirmation students, it is. <laughs> Who has the right to conform you? Pastor Matt, that's right. No. <laughs> the one who has the right to conform you is the one who formed you, the one who made you. God, there you go. All right. <laughs> Um, God has the right to form you. He, um, he has the right to conform you. And, and here's, here's, again, here's where I'm just going to plead with you, 8th graders, ninth graders, and any other kids in the room. You're going to go out into this world, and someday when somebody hears you're a Christian, they're going to be uh, ridiculing you or making fun of you, and they're going to say, don't you know that your church just brainwashed you or that your pastors just conformed you to their own standard or that they had this idea they just want your money or they're working with faulty information? They're, they're going to say, oh, your church just conformed you. And here's where I want you to remember one thing, if you can. I did not conform you. Bethlehem did not conform you. Everything we've talked about is from the Bible. It's God who is conforming you. And and you need to know something about this person who's challenging you. They're not trying to set you free from being conformed. They're trying to conform you to what they want. So who has the right to conform you? It's only the one who formed you. And this, this is something that Daniel's completely bought into as we see his story. You know, only 8th eighth, eighth grade, ninth grade. He's bought into this idea. God alone can tell him what the standards are that he needs to conform to. And we're going to see this play out uh, remarkably here in Daniel chapter 1. Let's go ahead and get into the story here. So I'm sure you picture there's this train of Jews and Hebrews leaving, uh, being deported from Judah. And among these were some men from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. 
To Daniel, he gave the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, the name Shadrach. To Mishael, the name Meshach. And to Azariah, the name Abednego. They changed their names. And picture it this way. They're in this immigration or immigrant receiving office, department, whatever it is, and they're taking them through the line. You know, in modern terms, here's your new social security card. Here's your new certificates. By the way, here's your new name that you're going to have in this land too. So they're giving them all this new stuff. Um, And you might think to yourself, what's with the new names? Why would that be such a big deal? What I'm going to put on the next slide is a lot of information. Don't Don't be worried by it. It's just making one single point. But here's what their names mean. Daniel's birth name means, the word El simply means God. Daniel means God is judge or God is in control. They gave him a new name. Your name's now Belteshazzar. Bel is in control. Bel was a Babylonian god. Hananiah, his name meant the Lord shows grace. And they said, no, your name is now Shadrach, which means command of Aku, our moon god. You think God shows grace? No, God gives you commands. That's what he gives you. Mishael's name meant, who is like God? And they said, no, your name is now Meshach, who is like Aku, our moon god. Azariah means the Lord helps. No, no, your name is now Abednego. You're now one who helps our God. One who helps Nabu. And, and you see what they're doing here? They're completely twisting around everything so that every time they hear their name spoken, they would think to themselves, oh, I'm supposed to be serving their God. Now, if you're Daniel, and if you're the model of resilient faith, what do you do when they slap this on you? You think Daniel's got to stand up, he's got to make a big stink of this, he's got to say, I'm not taking your Babylonian names, and you'd think there's this big public theme that goes on, but here's something interesting. It doesn't say that Daniel or these three men did a thing about this. They let these names be stamped on them, because here's what Daniel understood. You can call me names, but I don't care. You can call me different things, but that doesn't change who I am. Uh, Someone might call you names, but at the end of the day, you still call the shots. Uh, Fill in number two here. Somebody might call you names, and and that name might be, oh, you're a hypocrite, or oh, you're one of those people. And they might categorize you and put a name on you. and, And yeah, your pride might say, I don't want that. But at the end of the day, what does it do? They may call you names, but you still call the shots. So one amazing thing that you see throughout the book of Daniel, and and confirmands, girls, if if you get a Bible for your confirmation, first thing you should read, Daniel 1 through 6, what you're going to see is time and time again, these guys who are serving other Babylonian gods, they're willing to stand up for anything. You're going to put me in a fiery furnace? I don't care. I'll worship only the true God, the Lord. Uh, You throw me in a lion's den? I don't care. I will stand up for what I know is true. You see this resiliency of faith. Their names didn't matter a bit. What mattered was the one who called them by name. And the story goes on because one other thing that really stands out here, and then we're going to finish the story off, but in the next verse, we're going to see that there's kind of a play on words here. It's like we just saw. The chief official gave them new names, but Daniel resolved not to defile himself. Those two words, gave and resolved, are actually the same Hebrew word. What it's literally saying is this. The chief official set for them new names. He set for them new names or set to them new names. But Daniel set in him a decision. 
Yes, you can set on me a new name, whatever you like, but I'm going to set inside myself a decision that you can't break me from. Uh, He resolved to not defile himself. And here's why you see Daniel is making this this very strong claim. He said, you can call me names, I don't care, but here's where I draw the line. Uh, Here's why. He said, you can change my name. You can compromise my name, Daniel. I don't care if you do that, but if you compromise the name of my God, that's where I have to draw a line. This is where I resolve that I can't. And, and so that's what Daniel's doing. Change my name. I don't care. Don't touch God's name. And you might think to yourself, well, how can you know, eating food and drinking stuff, how can that be um, ways of compromising God's name? A uh, quick answer is the food and drink inside the royal palace in Babylon, that would have been dedicated to all these gods like Bel and Nabu. And, and, and as they ate them, they would see that as a participation with their gods. And so it was this, almost this worship and as Daniel thought about that, that was crossing a line in his conscience. He said, I can't defile myself in this way. So he resolved in his heart that he would not do it. And that other word, resolve, that's a, a key one that you guys are going to have to do also. Resolve means that Daniel, beforehand, decided what to do. That before the food and drink ever was put down in front of him, he said to himself, when that time happens, I have predetermined, I have predecided that I'm not going to eat it and I'm not going to drink it. Uh, that, that's our, our next fill in here as, as we look forward. Resilient faith predetermines the best course of action. You look forward and you say to yourself, in this situation, here's what I will do for God. Or here's what I need to do for me. Here's where we get all sort, ourselves in all sorts of trouble because, you know, we, sometimes we just don't think about stuff. Uh, you end up uh, you know, alone in the car after a date. You know, what are you going to do? Uh, if, if you haven't made a, a decision before that point, you might just say, well, I guess I'll just go with the flow. I'll do whatever he wants to do. Or you enter that situation saying, you know what, I've decided that this is where I draw the line. And so before you get in that situation, you know what's going to happen. The, the way we get in trouble is when we don't make those decisions and we end up out there and things happen and we just go with the flow. And then you end up conforming to one that you never wanted to. Resilient faith predetermines the best course of action. And we can say it stronger than that. It doesn't just pick out the best course. It decides on what to do before it ever happens. And, and maybe the question is, wouldn't that be great if we could just do that? If we could pre-decide for tomorrow what we're going to do. Pre-decide how many calories to eat. Pre-decide how much sleep we're going to get. Pre-decide all the important things that need to happen. And then just magically it happens because we pre-decided it. Here's where we get into a little bit of, of our weaknesses here. Because as much as we try to do this and see the things that are coming up, and as much as we try to decide beforehand what we're going to do, here's what we actually do. Instead of predetermining, we post-determine. Instead of looking ahead, we look back and we say, man, I messed up. And we look at what we did with him or what we did with her or what we did with them or what we did with ourselves. And we look back and we say, boy, that was a bad, bad decision. And then it stays with you. So much of our, of our time can be consumed by looking back at decisions we made and saying, oh, that was, oh, why did I do that? And, and be consumed by this guilt that we have over things that we did wrong. So why on earth would God give us a model of this? Why on earth would God say to you, let's look ahead 
Here's why. This is something that the book of Ephesians does a remarkable job of as Paul writes to those Christians there in Ephesus. The thing about God is he asked you to look ahead because he has already looked ahead for you. In fact, did you know that before you were ever born, before the world was ever created, he decided, he predetermined that he would call you by faith. He predetermined that you would be with him. He predetermined all of you that you would be touched by his Holy Spirit. And he, he, he looked at you and he's like, you know what? You're going to be a wreck when I get you. You're going to be so consumed by all these things you've done. It's going to be a lifelong thing too. It's not going to be an easy fix. You're just going to be a mess. But he came to a course of action before you were ever born. He said, you know what? I'm going to take your past and all those, those post-determinations that you've made. I'm just going to wipe it away. I'm going to wash it away in the blood of my son. And that's really the the crucial point that you need to get to in your faith is is being able to say, I'm confident looking ahead because I know what God has done behind. Uh, To know that he has wiped wiped it away, that he has given me a clean slate and that it doesn't matter what I did in the past. He wants me to shine today. And something remarkable happens in the, in the rest of the story here of Daniel. You might ask yourself the question, okay, what does it look like, though, if, if we were to predetermine ahead of time the best course of action and even decide ahead of time that we would stick to our guns and not compromise the name of God but only let him conform us? What if we could do that? Uh, the end of the story here kind of gives us the conclusion here. Uh, so Daniel had asked this, this, guard, this official, please don't make me eat this food. Now God had caused the official to show favor and sympathy to Daniel. He understood him. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, Nebuchadnezzar, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men your age? The king would then have my head because of you. And so Daniel had resolved something, but now he hits a roadblock. So what does he do? You do not give up. Daniel then said to the guard underneath that official, the the guard whom the official had appointed over Daniel and the other men, this is what Daniel said, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. Now, Now you might think, oh, okay, Christians have to be loud and bold and, you know, Stand on the street corners with bullhorns? No. Daniel was resilient in his faith and he was strong and uncompromising. But at the same time, he's tactful, he's polite, and he's full of grace. And that spirit of patience and wisdom is going to do the same for you as you shine in this world. Show you that shining doesn't have to be this obnoxious thing. It can be done politely and tactfully and full of grace. And so that, uh, Daniel gives a compelling argument, and the ending is completely unexpected. So this guard agreed to this, and he tested them for 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. And so Daniel becomes this popular guy. He turned the cafeteria into nothing more than a vegetable garden and water. But here's what Daniel perhaps was not expecting. He was expecting to to resolve that he himself would not defile himself. But what happened? This kid from Judah brought into this new kingdom of Babylon 
ended up conforming the people around him. He shined with his light as best he could, and God ended up making it have an impact on all the people around him. And I'm just going to leave you with that thought. What happens if we can have a kind of resilient faith that predetermines the best course of action? And what if we make up our mind, I don't care what the world says. I'm not going to listen to my own voice. I'm only going to listen to the one who formed me. What will it look like? You're going to see your light shine. And, and, to wrap thing, and to wrap things up here, I think if, if you're a Christian, one of the things that really bu- bugs you is, I, I don't know if I can make that kind of faith inside of me. I don't have that kind of resilient faith that, that, that Daniel had. I wish I could. I'm going to work on it. I'm going to try hard. And that's kind of our, our attitude going into it. Uh, let me close with this thought. Faith was not yours to form. Faith was not yours to conform. Because faith is the gift of God that he gave to you to connect you to his son, Jesus. Therefore, faith is not yours to make more resilient. It is not up to your strength to become more determined to choose the best course or to predecide on what you will do. Faith is a gift from God that he gives to you. And it's not just this empty thing inside of you or this, flo- this, this idea floating around. Faith is a very, very strong and powerful thing that connects you to your Savior. It's your defining characteristic. And no matter what, in good days and bad days, come rain or shine, the faith that God gave you will continue to shine for the glory of God.